Grace and peace to you from God our Father, from our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit who brings us great comfort. In the name of Jesus, amen. You may be seated. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. To be a Christian is to have faith in Jesus. It's really that simple. There is no Christianity apart from faith in Christ. A person must believe in Christ. He must place his trust and his hope upon who Jesus is and what Jesus does for them. And all ultimate joy comes from him. Hope comes from him. That means that life, death, resurrection of Jesus, God's eternally begotten Son, that's the thing that makes the Christian the most joyful. Where and when life, death, and resurrection of Jesus are presented to us and delivered to us, that will be the most sacred time and place in our lives. That's what it means to have a God. Martin Luther, he teaches it really well in the large catechism where he says, A God means that from which we are to expect all good, in which we are to take our refuge in distress. So that to have a God is nothing else than to trust and to believe in him from the whole heart. As I have often said, that the confidence and faith of the heart alone make both God and an idol. If your faith and your trust are right, then your God is also true. And on the other hand, if your trust be false and wrong, then you have no true God. For these two belong together, faith and God. That now I say, upon which you set your heart and what you trust, that properly is your God. And that brings us to a problem. See, there are many people in life who claim to fear, love, and trust in Jesus above all things. But when you examine their lives, you see something quite different. To be a Christian means to have faith in Jesus, to derive all hope from Jesus, to receive our greatest joy from Jesus. Yet often... When we look at our lives, they reflect the opposite of this. You hear something like, yes, we are Christians. Yes, we believe in Jesus, but we're not going to be all heady about it. We'll go to church when we feel like it. We'll celebrate the big holidays. We'll pray around the dinner table and at family gatherings if we remember to. But we aren't any Jesus freaks. We aren't going to go around throwing a religion in other people's faces. We know what we believe, and we don't need to go to church all the time to talk about Jesus, to learn about Jesus, or to have a relationship with Jesus. We will live how we want to. We will do what we want to. You can't judge me. I'm going to live on my own terms. Have you heard that before? Does it sound familiar? You've probably heard someone say this. You may even, at one point, have said it yourself. But let me ask, 
Does that sound like a life of faith that is centered on Jesus? Does this person sound like a person who receives their deepest and most heartfelt joy from the work, the promises, and the gifts of Jesus? Does this sound like a life that relegates Jesus to the sidelines and is ready to appeal to him when he's needed but sees less and less need of him in our day-to-day? There are other things that I need. There's other things that I want to do. There's other things that I'm going to prioritize over having fellowship with Christ Jesus, my God. There's a spiritual malaise and disinterest that has affected the Christian church in terrible ways. Last spring, a survey done by the American Enterprise Institute reported that 33% of Americans never attend church. It also reported that 66% of people my age and younger who claim to be Christians rarely attend a church service at least once monthly. Where does this come from? If the stats line up, these people most likely grew up in churches and had believing parents. What happened? Perhaps we can say that they don't fear God and they're trespassing against God's law, and that's true to a degree. I believe there's also a greater illness at the root of it, and that is that they see little need for the gospel of Christ in their day-to-day lives. And so crying out with the Christian congregation, Lord, have mercy, Christ, have mercy, Lord, have mercy, well, it's not an ultimate priority, is it? Other things become a priority. Work, money, entertainment, rest, personal comfort, sex, club sports, carelessly planned family events, catching up on sleep, These are things that fill in for Jesus. These are the things that we fear, love, and trust. These are the things that provide us true comfort and heartfelt joy. Or maybe it's something else. It could just be that the social leanings now are more against Christ in his church, and so there's less social pressure to be involved. But whatever it is, it's not Jesus. Jesus has not promised to be in our personal comfort. Jesus not promised to be in my money, my work, my entertainment, my personal comfort. He hasn't promised to be in the convenience or the riches or the pleasures or the social acceptance that we all crave. And these things cannot do for you what Jesus promises to do for you. Yet that is where many choose to go. Yet none of these things provide what Jesus gives. Because Jesus alone gives the mercy of God. Faith in Jesus saves a person from sin and death. And when there are people who truly see their dire predicament, what do they do? They run to Jesus. That is what we witnessed from our gospel reading this morning. We have the leper. He runs to Jesus. Jesus had just finished preaching his sermon on the mount, and crowds now followed him as he was coming down from the mountain. 
And one man begins to cry out, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. He burst through the crowd of people and kneels before Jesus and says these words, and he is a leper. He's sick. He's isolated. He's cast off from regular society. He's considered unclean. And that meant that he could not be touched. He could not participate in the ceremonial life of the Jews. His life was miserable. There was no cure for leprosy, and he knew it. But now he had heard about Jesus. He heard about this man who was healing people, who was declaring that the kingdom of God was at hand, who preached and spoke with authority. And he believed him to be the Christ, and he came running to him. He believed that God is merciful and will help those who cry out to him. And so what does he do? He breaks the rules. He runs up to Jesus. This leper was not allowed to approach people. If he saw people coming down the road, he had to stand at a distance and say, unclean, so that he would not come into contact with them. But not with Jesus. He runs to him and he kneels in worship crying out, Lord, you can make me clean. Here we have a man who knows his sickness. He knows there's no hope for him outside of Jesus. Only God could deliver him. And when God makes himself known, when God comes near, he casts off all of his hopelessness and runs to him. He knew Jesus could make him clean. He knew Jesus had the power to deliver him. And so he placed all of his hope in Jesus. All bets were off. He came running. That is what faith does. It disregards every warning. It disregards every fear and every concern and goes to the one who can heal you. Faith knows that God loves Faith knows that God cares. It does not doubt that God has the power and the goodwill to help and save sinners. And this leper had faith. His faith understood that whatever Jesus did, it would be good for him. So if Jesus healed him, it would be good. If Jesus said, no, I can't heal you today, that will be good also. That's what, if you will, means. That we subject ourselves to God's good and gracious will, knowing that whatever he does, it's good for us. Martin Luther puts it this way. He says, faith does not doubt that God has a good will towards the person. It does not begrudge him all that is good for him, but rather desires him to have it. So whether, however, that which faith begs and pleads for is good and useful, or that we have no knowledge that God alone knows. Therefore, faith prays thus, that it leaves everything to the gracious will of God, whether it be conducive to his honor and our need, and does not doubt that God will give it, or, if it is not given, that his divine will, out of great mercy, does not give it, since he sees it is best not given. But for all of this, faith in God's gracious will remains certain and sure, whether he grants it, or does not grant it. And so this man burst into a crowd of people, kneels before Jesus, says, if you will, you can make me clean. That is faith. This leper placed himself completely into the hands of Jesus. 
Jesus demonstrates how merciful he is. First, Jesus reaches out and touches this man. This would have made Jesus unclean. Yet no uncleanness of this leprosy can make the Holy One of God less holy. No, Jesus is the Christ. He is the spotless Lamb of God, and he's come to bear our sin and our death. He remains holy even when touching that which is unclean, and he bears the uncleanness of this man upon himself. In the same way, he bears our uncleanness. He is our sin-bearer. He declares, I will be clean. And that means he desires to take away the plague that rests upon this man's life. And as Jesus utters those words, that hideous and painful sickness leaves the leper. He is a leper no more. He is unclean no more. His faith in Jesus is blessed because of the mercy of Jesus. The same could have been said about the second man who we hear approach Jesus today, the centurion. He was a Roman soldier. He was in command of a unit of legionaries. That means he had people above him in the Roman chain of command, and he had people under him in the Roman chain of command. He had to follow orders, and he had to give orders that he expected to be followed. He had to submit to authority. He had to wield authority. But now he struggles with something that no man has authority over. He has a servant who's suffering and dying. He's paralyzed. No man can heal this. Life and death, sickness and health, these are not things that we human beings have command over. We can treat them. We can delay them. We can alter them. But we cannot command them. We're subjected to life and death, sickness and health. And so the centurion had to look outside of man and man's authority to save his servant. So he looked at the one who believed he had the authority to command life and death and sickness and health. He looked to Jesus. The centurion is not an Israelite. He's not a descendant of Abraham. He's not a Jew. Most people would have hated him. He had no connection with Jesus, either through heritage or through religion. He was an outsider. He had no right to Jesus. Yet what does this man do? He appeals to him to help his servant who's suffering greatly from paralysis. And by what right could he appeal to Jesus for help? His servant's suffering. His servant's in pain. Nobody could help. His servant was terminal. Why did the centurion appeal to Jesus? Well, he went to Jesus because Jesus has authority. He believed who Jesus is. He believed that Jesus had the authority over heaven and earth. He had the authority of his word to speak, and what he spoke would be done. To what does the centurion appeal in his plea for Jesus from help? He doesn't appeal to his own worthiness. He says, no, I'm not worthy for you to come into my house. He appeals to Jesus as Lord. And he appeals to his servant's need. He appeals to Jesus' mercy. And Jesus prayed his faith as being greater than any he had seen in Israel. Why? Because the man knew what Jesus said was all that mattered. 
Jesus, out of love, shows mercy, and with a little word from his mouth, he heals the centurion's servant. And so what do we see here in these two miracles performed by Jesus? Well, they demonstrate great faith being rewarded. They demonstrate faith looking to Jesus, faith trusting in Jesus, faith resting in Jesus' mercy. Because faith believes that Jesus has the authority of God to help us, to heal us, to deliver us from those things that plague us in this life. Faith trusts that Jesus cares and that he loves even those who would be deemed unworthy. Faith depends on Christ to do for us what cannot be done by us. The leper could not heal himself. The centurion could not heal his servant. These things belonged to God alone. Healing, life, death. And when God comes and shows up, what do these two people do? They rush to him. They plead their cause according to his mercy, his love, and his power to help. And that is what we do here. That's what Christians do when they, they come to church. They gather in the assembly of believers. We, poor sinners, come running to Jesus. And we do so because Jesus is our only hope. We, too, are afflicted with a problem that we cannot heal or overcome on our own, and that is sin. Sin kills us. Sin condemns us to hell, and we simply can't stop it. No matter how much we try to discipline ourselves, no matter how much we try to focus our minds, no matter how much we try to focus and structure our lives, our fallen nature cannot will itself into holiness so that we are presentable to God and free from his wrath. We need the one who desires our salvation and has the authority to bring it about to relieve us from our sins. We need Jesus. The same way the leper and the centurion needed Jesus, we need him even more. Because we need him to forgive us and deliver us from our sinful nature. We need a savior. Faith trust in Jesus to be our Savior. This is exactly what Jesus does. This is what he has promised to do. He's promised to forgive us, to help us, to give us life, to give us salvation. We are nothing without it. Yet that is exactly what Jesus has come to give. Jesus cleanses the lepers. Jesus heals the centurion's servant because these maladies are symptoms of a greater illness that Christ has come to cure. Sickness and death are in this world as a part of the curse of sin. And these two illnesses are perfectly illustrative of what sin is. Those who suffer from these illnesses are terminal, they're powerless, and they're counted as lost, though even though they aren't dead, they are counted as dead in the eyes of the people around them. That's what sin is. It's something that we are powerless to cure, that places us in a state of spiritual deadness. St. Paul, he talks about it. He says, You were dead in your trespasses and your sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. 
You hear that? Dead in trespasses and sin, naturally children of wrath. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loves us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. God has taken us who were once dead in sin and has made us alive in Christ Jesus our Lord. And he's done so by having Jesus bear our death. Jesus suffers for sinners. Jesus dies that we might live. Jesus goes to the cross for you and for me. Jesus forgives. He gives eternal life to those who are counted as dead. And he touches sinners and he commands the illness to leave them. That's what he does for you. That's what he does for you because he has the authority to do so and he has the desire and the will to do so. And that's what we trusted him to do. What does Jesus desire for you? What does Jesus want for you? What does Jesus want you to do? How does he desire you now to live? We live now according to the faith that we have in him. We live our lives according to what Jesus does for us. We build our lives around this good news of Christ. Even as sin still may plague us, we still falter. We still struggle with that old sinful nature. We still struggle to get up on that Sunday morning to go to church. We still fight within ourselves not to do the things that we hate doing. We still struggle in ourselves to do the things that we desire to do that are holy to God. That's what St. Paul's talking about in Romans 6. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? No means. How can we, who are dead to sin, still live in it? You see, we don't live according to our sinful flesh. We don't live according to our sinful nature. Those things don't possess us. Those things don't own us. They don't command our lives. That part of us is dead. It died with Jesus on the cross. Rather, we dwell in the mercy of Jesus. We live by faith in the gospel. That's what our epistle lesson is all about today. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. St. Paul here is saying that Christians live by faith in Jesus. And that does not mean that faith is relegated to the background of your life. It's not the lawn patio furniture of our life. It's front and center. It's the house that we dwell in. Faith is what God gives us to bring us to life. It's what brings us back from death. And so rather than dwell in our sin, we dwell and we live in the mercy of Jesus. We rest entirely upon him. We rest entirely upon his mercy and his goodness. We place our lives in his hands and trust that he will be good to us and give us good things. And we depend on his promises that save sinners. That's what happens when we gather for worship. That's what happens when we gather on Sunday morning. Jesus is providing help, comfort, and mercy to sinners. The entire divine service is filled with this promise. From the beginning to the end, we're provided with the comforting work of Jesus to forgive sinners. From the words of the absolution to the reception of the body and blood to the words of the blessing at the end of the service, Jesus is here 
to bless and forgive. Because that's what he wills to do. He's here to relieve us from the sins that are killing us. And so to live by faith is to receive the things from Jesus as our highest good. As we come to church today, we acknowledge that we are receiving the most wonderful, most beautiful, most sacred, and most important thing that we will receive all week. And without these things, we are without hope in this dark and sinful world. Without them, we are left alone to wrestle with our sin by ourselves. And Jesus does not do that to us. Jesus does not abandon us to wrestle against the things that are killing us on our own. No, Jesus has not abandoned us, but he makes his dwelling place here in the midst of his Christians so that we might receive the gifts of his good spirit. Dear Christians, you all who confess to believe in Jesus, do not live a life of faithlessness. Do not isolate yourself from Jesus and what he works for you. Run to him when and where he makes himself available for you. Come to church, not just because, hey, I'm telling you to do it. Come to church because Jesus is here. And he saves you. He loves you. He desires to make you clean. And he alone can deliver you from this fallen and evil world. He alone has the authority to do it. So come and worship Jesus. Join the leper. Join the centurion. And with them, you will not be put to shame. You will be blessed. Let us pray. Help us, O Lord, to never grow complacent in receiving your good gifts. Bless us with faith in Jesus so that we desire to receive what he alone can offer. And give us joy in receiving what he has to give to us. We know he has both the will and the authority to give us forgiveness, life, and eternal salvation. Help us to live by faith in that will and that promise. In the name of Jesus, amen. I mean, the peace of God that surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in the true faith, the life everlasting. Amen. We rise.